Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. Every chiropractor wants to give better adjustments, and every student wants to figure out the secret to giving a successful adjustment. Today we're going to talk about a particular aspect of the adjustment that doesn't get a lot of attention, but in the end, it might be the most important aspect of all. The idea behind this episode was born one afternoon in my backyard. My kids got a Nerf football for Christmas. They knew that I used to play football, but they've certainly never seen me do it. They wanted me to teach them how to play football. I was showing them how to throw the ball properly, and they both picked that up very quickly. What didn't come so quickly was the ability to catch, even when the ball hit them in the chest, or the hands, or even the face. When they would throw the ball back, if it was off target, I would just reach out and grab it with one hand. My daughter finally said, how do you do that? I responded by saying, decades of practice. I knew she wasn't satisfied with that answer, so I continued to think about it. I realized it was the manipulation of inertia. You have to have a soft hand. At the moment of impact, you need to have your hand moving in the same direction as the ball. You have to clamp your fingers down at just the right time. There's obviously a trick to it, but once you know the trick, anyone can learn to do it. Such is the same for the adjustment. It's the manipulation of inertia. And once you know the trick, anybody can do it. So let's talk about inertia and how it affects what we do. Obviously, this is going to involve a lot of physics. So if you hate physics or are intimidated by physics, don't worry. We'll sum it up a way that's simple and practical. To get your mind thinking in the right way, let's consider the simple example of a sprinter in the starting blocks ready to run 100 meters at full speed. We need fast acceleration, followed by sustained effort for a specified amount of time, and then we need to stop. In the starting block, we have both feet in the dorsiflex position. This will preload for rapid acceleration. Same is true of the adjustment. We want to use our body weight, not our strength, to preload the joint. If you were tense and stiff prior to coming out of the blocks, you'd be too slow to be competitive. If you set up the thrust and you're tense and stiff, you'll be equally slow. And the compensation for slow is to use more power. We want to limit power and focus instead on rapid acceleration to full speed. Once you leave the blocks and accelerate to full speed, you'll find that you're swinging your arm so that your right arm goes forward when your left leg goes forward, and vice versa. This happens for two reasons. The first is a physics principle known as the conservation of energy. The other reason, which goes with it, is that this process keeps your pelvis in a neutral position, which has the effect of min minimizing friction. Friction is important because it has a lot to do with inertia. All right, let's dive a little deeper into the physics so we can gain a better understanding of subluxations and how to correct them. Inertia, as a physics principle, is best expressed by the equation of I equals mR squared. From this equation, we discovered that inertia is a product of mass, which is a relative constant since the vertebra will not be altering its mass between the time we examine it and the time we adjust it. That means that changes in inertia must be the result of changes in R squared. R is determined by the distance from the axis of rotation to the edge of the mass in question. Now you might presume that number is also unchanging, which would mean that inertia is a constant. This is where we must realize that with subluxation, something very unexpected happens. The instantaneous axis of rotation changes when we have fixation, and fixation is the result of misalignment produced by subluxation. That means 
that when we identify a vertebra as a subluxation and it requires an adjustment for correction, that vertebra also has an alteration in its axis of rotation, and that means there's a subsequent change in its moment of inertia. In other words, a subluxated vertebra is harder to move than an unsubluxated vertebra because it has more inertia based on the definition of what it means to be subluxated. But before we stop there, let's consider another physics principle that can affect the stickiness of the joint. Newton's third law of motion states that for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So what happens then when a disc becomes swollen? The disc will exert an outward pressure in all directions. When it pushes back into the central and lateral canals, there isn't much there to push back, so very little pushback occurs. However, when it pushes upward and downward on the vertebra above and below, the vertebra, which have mass, some more than others, push back with an equal and opposite force. It should be noted that this effect serves a stabilizing function whereby joint motion is limited to prevent further injury and support healing. That means the body is now hyper-armed to prevent the very motion you're intending to create. This is the reason why an acute patient with a D1 disc is often the most difficult patient to get adjusted. We are attempting to overcome physics principles that have been set in motion against us, and the resulting feel is that of extreme stickiness, for lack of a better word. If we want to overcome physics, then we must use physics principles to do it. For this thought experiment, we'll assume it's a D1 disc we are dealing with. If we can handle the hardest ones, then the simple ones merely require the same activity and thinking, but to a slightly lesser degree. I wouldn't usually put a D1 disc on the knee chest, or at least not on the first visit, and even then rarely afterward. But I would put them on the high-low, so let's start there. At Life University, we teach the pumping method to reduce inflammation. If you're not familiar with this, you can find it described in detail in Dr. Plogger's Purple Book. I'm more interested right now in the why and not necessarily the how, but I'll give you a brief description. You basically use your body weight to put pressure on the vertebra as a way of causing changes in the disc that will ultimately lead to a reduction in inertia. The procedure is pressure dependent, not too much, not too little. It's also vector dependent, so adjusting skill is still required. But the most important ingredient is patience. The mistake that the novice often makes in this procedure is rushing it. Patience is a virtue, and in this context, it's always better to take more time. It will always pay off in huge dividends. Getting back to the science, a change in physical size as a result of reduced swelling, ice is also beneficial for this reason, will lead to a decrease in inertia as it reduces the distance from the axis of rotation to the physical boundary of the disc. It's for this reason that I always explain to patients that the purpose of the ice is to create an easier and more comfortable adjustment, but swelling is not the enemy because it will protect the spine after the adjustment. I want patients to understand that swelling is not an enemy, but it creates an obstacle to what we want to do. We're merely creating a window of opportunity to create an adjustment, and then we're going to allow the increase in inertia to stabilize the joint and prevent aberrant motion. When adjustments don't stay put, so to speak, it may be because we have removed too much swelling, and this leaves the body with no mechanism to increase inertia and prevent motion. Assuming we've created the proper environment for the adjustment, we must now talk about the procedure itself and how it is influenced by the inherent inertia. If you simply apply a small amount of pressure to the vertebra, you will immediately feel that there is a vector at which you feel tremendous pushback. This is the point of maximum inertia. This point tells you a lot about the disc, including the vector where you absolutely must not thrust. To find the proper thrust vector, 
we must hunt for the point of minimum inertia. Don't confuse this with meaning no inertia, as this point might still have a lot of inertia, even though it's less than any other vector. I also recognize with my own adjusting that there's a point where, if the inertia is greater than this point, it will not complete the adjustment, so I won't even try. If I were to try, I've learned through experience, I will fail at the adjustment and the joint will respond with increased swelling, which leads to even greater inertia. That's not a scenario I want to embrace. Instead, I recognize that I need to reduce the swelling even further so I can get the adjustment. My options are to change the angle or position on the table or change the table. I can ice it more, I can pump it more, or I can send the patient home to ice and bring them back later in the day. If the patient confesses that they've been using heat, then I'll usually send them home to ice and bring them back. If you've ever tried adjusting someone who has used heat, you have no doubt felt that it is nearly impossible to move the joint. Even if you somehow overcome the inertia and make the adjustment, you and the patient will almost instantly regret it because the inertia is so high that in addition to speed, you must also use force. And that high force with high inertia often leads to damage of the joint along with extreme pain and an incomplete adjustment. So it's, it's so much better to have patience. Send them home or stay in your office if they come from far away and use a combination of pumping and ice to get the patient where the adjustment can be completed comfortably and beneficially. Now, this is an example with an extreme disc, but how does this apply to everyday practice? Well, the principle is exactly the same, but the elements you're searching for are far more subtle. With a D1 disc, we might have high inertia everywhere, so we hunt for the vector of lowest inertia, even though it still might have a lot of inertia. With a D4 disc, we might feel low inertia everywhere, but we're still hunting for the vector of lowest inertia, which might be an extremely subtle difference. With high inertia, we need an adjustment with rapid acceleration to break the inertia. The problem is that high speed often leads to high power, which leads to high depth, and a D1 disc can't handle a lot of depth. So the secret, which must be learned as a physical skill, is to create rapid acceleration, followed by rapid deceleration, or negative acceleration if you want to remain true to physics lingo, that leads to a dead stop at a particular and pre-chosen destination. So the end result is a fast but shallow adjustment with tremendous precision. I apologize in advance for going back to a football reference, but I usually record these on Sundays, so maybe this will give you some insight into what is happening on the field. I rarely had to practice swing passes or screen passes. The reason is because they're short passes, and short passes are easy to be precise. On those particular passes, you just float it a bit and give the receiver a chance to run under it, and all's well. Compare that to throwing a pass 60 yards downfield. To hit it with precision, your arm motion, release point, and follow-through have to be absolutely precise. A one-degree miss with your release could turn into missing your receiver by 10 yards or more. Bringing this back to the adjustment, the short adjustment on a D1 disc is easier on the precision side, although more challenging on the timing side. The same is true in football, coincidentally. But that precision is absolutely essential to creating a proper adjustment. The deep adjustment you might do on, say, a D2 mid-thoracic, for example, is easier on the timing, but much more challenging on the precision as you're traveling a long way. If your aim is off and you miss, how do you know? With a football, there can be no mistake, and everyone knows you missed your target. But how do you know with an adjustment? The most reliable way to know is that the patient doesn't improve the way you would expect. But that cannot be judged instantaneously, and that's the problem, and the reason we often fail to recognize when we've missed, so to speak. Another point that I always try to highlight in my classes is the normal motion of a vertebra. 
When a vertebra is in a posterior and inferior position, a position that is caused by the nucleus, so the nucleus must be the center of attention when correcting it, the initial movement must be in a superior and anterior direction. However, there will come a point where the vertebra can no longer continue to go superior if it is to continue going anterior, because the vertebra moves in an arced motion due to the presence of the nucleus. It will eventually reach a peak where the line of drive takes on an inferior and anterior line of drive. This characteristic is only noticeable on deeper adjustments and demands a dynamic thrust in an arched motion rather than a linear straight line thrust. If a linear thrust is given, it will eventually bottom out, for lack of a better phrase, before the adjustment is complete. This is another reason why the patient may not respond to the adjustment the way we might have anticipated. A solid understanding and feel for inertia is essential for creating a proper adjustment. As we develop our adjusting skill, we're really only developing our sensitive touch for the vector of least inertia and the timing of feeling the patient at the moment of maximum relaxation. Keep in mind that maximum relaxation is not an invitation to set the vertebra to the floor, but without opposition, we should be most capable of extreme precision. Precision exists as the concept of adjusting a bone to another bone with a point of perfect alignment. This is different from merely moving the bone to create the greatest amount of movement between the two surfaces. I think this would be the best way to describe the difference between an adjustment and a manipulation. Inertia, as a concept, is something that seems quite foreign to the world of chiropractic, but it's actually something we deal with every day. As one final point in this regard, the ultimate purpose of an adjustment is to reposition the nucleus at the center of the disc. Because it's possible to create a cavitation without properly realigning the nucleus, we cannot rely solely, or really even at all, on the sound that's created by the adjustment to know if this objective has been accomplished. Instead, a proper repositioning of the nucleus is something that's felt with the adjusting hand. In like manner, the inertia of the nucleus is also something that's felt with the adjusting hand. As we think about the physics behind a subluxation and its subsequent adjustment, we realize this is something that might best be re referred to as the science of the subluxation. When we talk about the science of chiropractic, we're usually referring to the physiological effects that occur as a direct result of the subluxation. But the mechanical lesion also has a science, including both the physics and the biomechanics affecting that lesion. The adjustment also has a science regarding what is our objective, how should it be performed, and what is our desired outcome for the joint. As one final analogy, there's a proper method for throwing a football, and it's entirely different from throwing a baseball. I'm often amazed at how many high school kids I see throwing a football like a baseball, and I can't believe nobody's ever corrected the motion. I won't teach you the whole process now, but two simple points is that with a football, you aim with your elbow, and you always release the ball over your head, never by your ear. There's a reason for this, as it changes the trajectory of the ball as it flies through the air, in accordance with your desired outcome, which is to be catchable as well as accurate. The point is that, believe it or not, there's a science to throwing a football, just as there is a science to delivering an adjustment, based on your desired outcome. It begins with the placement of your feet to control for height and balance. Is your upper body rotated compared to your feet, or is it straight in alignment? It depends on what you're trying to do. Is your elbow below your wrist to go I to S in a seated position, or is your wrist above your elbow to go S to I, like with an occiput? Every part of the adjustment should be determined by the objective in mind, and that is the science of the adjustment. Well, I hope today's short little lesson has helped you to focus your mind on what it is we're trying to accomplish and how we're going to accomplish it. We're all engaged in a lifelong pursuit of creating better adjustments and doing it consistently. 
To achieve that objective, we must know that science that affects both the subluxation and our adjustment. Next week, we're going to have a very special episode. For the first time, we're going to have two guests on the podcast. If you haven't heard, at last year's extravaganza, filming was taking place for a Gonstead documentary. Next week, we'll be talking about the release of this documentary and how you can get a copy for yourself. You won't want to miss that. So until then, I hope you have the very best week possible, and I'll see you again next time. Oh, my God.